Welcome to Brain and Vat. We are delighted to be joined by James Taylor, and we're going to be talking about organs, blood, and markets. And we've also got a special surprise in that one of my favorite guests, Travis Timmerman, is going to be guest hosting with me instead of that rascal Jason. James, would you like to start with a thought experiment? Oh, so this is a really simple question. So imagine that Travis is unfortunately dying. And Travis is dying in such a way that he, ha he could have another year to live, but his insurance company isn't going to pay for the palliative care. So Travis will have to sell his possessions, cash out his retirement fund, and so forth. And then he can purchase his own treatment and secure another year of life. The question that I have for people is not what should Travis do, but a more fundamental question. Should Travis be allowed to decide to cash out his retirement and live for another year? Or should he be allowed to decide not to do that, die now, and then leave his retirement fund intact for his family? Should that decision be Travis's? Travis, what do you think? Should that be your decision? Yeah, I might be biased here, but I want to say yes. It seems like that decision should be mine. I'm in a good position to know what's in my prudential interest with respect to this question. I'm not likely to act in any way that's straightforwardly or moral if I'm given the option. So why shouldn't I be allowed to do it? That seems perfectly reasonable to me. But notice, Travis, it seems that you've now committed yourself to a position that many people would find objectionable. Not me, because I'm an enlightened, free-thinking type of person. But you, it seems that you've committed yourself to the view that you, Travis, should be allowed to decide when you live and when you die on the basis of financial considerations. So imagine an equivalent situation. Somebody wealthy, Mark, offers you a large amount of money for your heart. Should you be allowed to make that decision? Removing your heart is going to result in your death, but you'll receive a large amount of money that you can then give to your family. Should you be allowed to make that decision also? Yeah. With respect to the question, I think a lot hangs on the should. So there's one question about whether, morally speaking, it's my prerogative to make that decision. And another question, and I'm sure you're going to touch on both of these, is whether the state should make it legal for people in general to make these sorts of decisions. And I take it you think I am I committing myself if I say yes to the first case that you gave, that I'm saying yes to both the moral and legal version of you the question about the You heart. could separate them, but then I think we're going to have a discussion as to why you think you should separate them. Because if it's morally permissible for you to make this decision, why should the state step in and stop you? Now, we could see if it's morally impermissible for you to make that decision. If, for example, you decide to give up a life as a philosopher and become an assassin instead, then we can see, okay, maybe the state can step in to stop those sort of transactions because those are impermissible transactions. But if we've got a permissible decision or a decision that it's permissible for you to make, why should the state be allowed to step in and forbid you from doing so? So I think that you're right. These are separate questions. But I think that if we grant that a decision is morally permissible to make, you can, for example, set up a lemonade stand and sell lemonade to children passing by if you want to be really creepy, Travis. <laughs> that seems like a yeah. permissible thing that you can do. So why should uh. the state stop you doing that, assuming that this is a non-creepy lemonade stand? 
Yeah. Good. So I think one argument that people might give is if the state doesn't prevent people from doing this, then many will act imprudently. And it would be in their interest for paternalistic reasons to prohibit them from doing that. Maybe they undervalue their own lives and overvalue the amount of extra welfare that the money that they would get would provide their family. That seems to be an argument for regulation rather than prohibition, though, doesn't it? You could say, look, there's going to be some people who might make really imprudent decisions. You think, gosh, $20,000, that's a huge amount of money. And my life sucks anyway, because my favorite TV shows have been canceled. So I'll make this deal. That would be imprudent. So what we might say is to weed out people who would make imprudent decisions like that, we might require a six-month waiting period. We have to meet with professionals. We have to meet with family members who have had people who've decided not to sell their hearts. In other words, we do the sort of things that we do with people who are considering donating kidneys currently. That seems like a reasonable sort of compromise. Right? Maybe the state can step in to, to protect the imprudent, but it won't actually prohibit. So you might have another reason why the two come apart. So as you say, the one is the state tries to be your daddy and decide what's in your interests and puts up these barriers. The other one is to say, no, you can do whatever's imprudent. That's fine. We're concerned about the people who will be consenting. And that what you'll have is this transaction that appears to have been legitimate, but there actually wasn't sufficient consent and this person was murdered and it was covered up with a monetary payment. And so the state then has a reason to say, even if in a lot of cases, this will be perfectly permissible, that it will be in the person's other kinds of post-death interests because they care about their family. We're so worried about the abuses. And even if the abuses happen very rarely, we have to have a ban. And you might think a similar thing happens with regards to voluntary euthanasia, that you could say, surely it's your life. You have control of your body and you should be perfectly entitled to end it. And sometimes it's going to be the merciful thing to do to allow the state to help you in ending it or allow private practitioners to help in ending it. But there could be abuses along the way and innocent people will be murdered. And on that basis, we prohibit. I see the argument, but and I see how it gains rhetorical persuasiveness from pointing to euthanasia. But we could give other examples which have the same sort of concern. So imagine I say this, I'm a forward-thinking state legislator, and I say, look, we know that there are people, elderly people, who are hastened, whose death is hastened by their children or by their heirs, because we've got this social practice of allowing people to bequeath their estates. Many cases, People are looked after and loved by their children and their children mourn when they die. But sometimes this is abused. So what we should do is prohibit bequests. And obviously, when it, people die, all their money should come to the state. Now, that seems to be the same sort of argument, but it's one which I think doesn't quite have the rhetorical force of euthanasia. In fact, I think the force goes the other way. We might say, yes, we realize but there's going to be some abuses when we allow people to bequeath their estates to people. But the overall social practice is so beneficial that we should allow it. Yes, yeah, so I suppose the question is one of how you do the balance and whether you think there are certain things that meet the thresholds that are so extreme. For example, in the prohibition on letting, letting your estate go to your children, 
we think that you have some strong property right over it, then you should be entitled to decide where it goes. And that the rights violation by banning that is just so gigantic. And so really, it's moving to a policy of one way to ensure that we don't have unequal treatment between victims and perpetrators just to kill everybody who's accused. And then everybody gets the same treatment. It's that sort of scenario. And so we can, I think, rule that out. When you're dealing with the Balancing Act, and you can say, you're probably going to deal with a situation that's reasonably infrequent. Obviously, it would be nice to save some lives by having this market, but some innocent people might be killed. And so maybe you want to look at the that ratio you would have in the capital murder cases, where you say it's better to let 100 um, guilty people go free than execute one, one innocent person. And then it's a matter of having that moral calculus. And I suppose the question is, how much of a genuine threat is it that we will have these people who are wrongfully killed for their organs and it covered up with the money because we have the legalized system? Mm-hmm. I suppose there would be two responses that I could give, which will go in different directions. So you mentioned in the bequest case, the case of people willing their estates to their children or to their heirs, but we have strong property rights in our stuff, our possessions. I think that's plausible, but I would su- suggest that we probably have an even stronger property right in our own bodies, our own persons, our hearts, our kidneys, our livers, and so forth. So if we're concerned about people having property rights over your prize 1965 Mustang, presumably we should be even more concerned about you having property rights over your kidneys. So if you can buy and sell your Mustang, I would suggest you ought to also to be allowed to buy and sell your kidney. So that could be one line of response. The other line of response about the Balancing Act, I think is interesting, but I think that we can bring in something else that we should also be concerned about. So there are currently markets in human kidneys. There are legal markets in Iran, and there's, as I understand it, fairly widespread illegal black markets in places like Moldova and India. And those are pretty bad. Even somebody who's in favor of markets, I'm not in favor of black markets, for all the obvious reasons. They're rife with abuse for both buyers and sellers. They're largely operated by criminal organizations. These are terrible things. Now, if we allow markets in human kidneys, I suspect that we will, if not at a, at a stroke, but pretty quickly, eliminate the black market in human kidneys. Because if you're a wealthy European or Israeli or American and you going and you need a kidney and you'll die without one, you might be very tempted to go to India and say, I'm just going to roll the dice. I'm going to die anyway. I may as well take the chance and then come back to my first world healthcare system and see what they can do with me. But if we allow markets in human kidneys, those people will no longer be going to Moldova or or to India because they'll have the opportunity to acquire kidneys here legally and presumably under a well-regulated system. So I think when we're doing the balancing act of what's the harms and benefits of allowing markets in human kidneys, we have to recognize that the benefits are going to be people get kidneys, people get money. But another huge benefit is you're going to cut off the demand for black markets in kidneys in developing countries. And I think that would be an enormous benefit. When I think about who would benefit most from these markets, I think benefits most from black markets right now. And depending on how uh, a kidney market is regulated, who would benefit most from that would be those that are most well off. And when, if you're taking egalitarian considerations into account when you're 
proposing laws might think what we would get is maybe an increase in net welfare, but that increase would move from those that are disenfranchised economically to those that are already the most privileged. And you might think that's a good reason to object to this kind of market. Oh, here's where things get lovely. And this is what I love about kidney markets, because it just turns out almost as if you've got the invisible hand of providence addressing all of the objections for you. It looks like if we actually had a kidney market, we would benefit everybody, and especially the least well-off. Here's how. Standard pro-market approach, a sort of simplistic approach, would be to say, look, you know, Sure, the wealthy will get kidneys they need and the impoverished will get the cash they need and everybody wins. But a kidney market will do that. It will have those advantages, but it'll also have the advantages of making it more likely that people who are impoverished and who need kidneys will receive kidneys. Because these people won't be, a kidney market won't function whereby you just have a sort of eBay for kidneys where you bid on your kidneys, price goes up or down, depending on haplotypes and demand and so forth. A kidney market in practice will essentially piggyback onto the current system of kidney distribution. So you'll have insurance companies or you'll have the state through Medicare or Medicare or Medicaid in the US or the National Health Service in the UK distributing kidneys. So what you'll find is if you allow people to buy kidneys, buy and sell kidneys, you'll have more kidneys becoming available. So people who are wealthy and connected and who can place themselves on waiting lists in various regions in the United States and thus gain access to different waiting lists, they will get kidneys quickly, more quickly than the impoverished. But they'll also be taken off the waiting list quicker because we've got more kidneys coming up. So if you're somebody who's relatively impoverished, and by relatively impoverished, middle class and below, people like us and the more and wealthier than us would be the relatively impoverished, then you're going to be more likely to get a kidney under this particular situation. And I think that's lovely. And there's another lovely part of this, which gets me really excited and I learned from Michelle Goodwin, is that African Americans under the current system tend to get kidneys at a lower rate simply because African-Americans tend not to donate as much for reasons to do with his, the historical injustices of the US medical system. But if you have a kidney market, it turns out that the economic inequality will start to work the other way. So her suggestion is you will likely to have more African-Americans acting as sellers. So you'll have more compatible kidneys becoming available for African-Americans who need kidneys. And I think that's just wonderful. So I'm interested in a bit about how you could design the market and whether there's better and worse ways of doing it. From what I understand in Iran, the state intervenes by setting a minimum price. And so you could have a total free market capitalism sort of situation where you basically get you say an eBay model, willing buyer, willing seller, and then you go and approach a hospital and you say, look, we've struck this deal at a price. Will you perform the operation for us? The other one is that the state regulates all of it and the state is the only purchaser. And so it could be funded through general taxation or as part of whatever amount of money that's in your fiscus for medical questions and people go and apply. And as you say, then you could benefit the rich and the poor alike. Do you have a preference on what kind of model is used? And then I also wonder about an alternative model 
which is which was developed by Richard Thaler, the economist, which is that you have a market of sorts, but it's a non-financial market. So what you have here is a matching market system with uh, ricochet effects. So someone needs a kidney, their spouse is willing to donate, but they're not a match. So the spouse says, then put me in the system. When you find a match, then I'll donate. And you have enough people in the system. Sometimes it takes about 48 people. And then eventually all the matches are there. And then you simultaneously perform that so that there's no one reneging on the deal. And sorry, I don't actually feel like giving my kidney now that my wife's gotten hers. Why is the financial system preferable to the ongoing matching market system? I think there's a really good reason why the financial system is better. And I think Richard Thaler and Al Roth, the Nobel Prize winning economist, who I think got his Nobel Prize for developing a practical model for this, I think they've saved hundreds and hundreds of lives. And that's not something that most academics can say. I certainly can't say that. Maybe Travis could say that, but I certainly can't. So I, th I think that's great. But it's only great given the unjust and immoral prohibition of markets. And here's why. The matching system is essentially a kidney barter system, right? So Travis's loved one needs a kidney, but Travis is not a match. My loved one needs a kidney, but I'm not a match. Travis is a match to my loved one. I'm a match to his. So we agree to trade and the operation is performed simultaneously. So there's no reneging. And this is done in a very wide, a widespread context. So you get many of these operations. But what we then have is essentially a barter market for organs. So we're bartering. I've got a kidney that will match your loved one. You've got a kidney that will match mine. Let's swap. And barter markets are notoriously inefficient. They're really bad at getting the goods where we want them to go. So I have a small farm and we raise heritage poultry and eggs. And Mark, you've got some really appealing posters behind you. So you want some eggs, I want posters. Now, so long as our desires coincide, we can make a trade. But there's going to be an obvious problem. Your poster is probably worth way more than, say, two dozen eggs. So you want the eggs, I want the poster, but we can't get the value commensurability to work out, so the trade doesn't go through. But we have a wonderful invention that helps this. It's called money. So my desires don't have to coincide with yours for us to be able to trade. My desires could coincide with somebody in, say, Australia who's got stuff on eBay that I want. I can trade with them. Then I've got some stuff that you want. You can trade with me. This is wonderful. So the barter market for kidneys, I think, is a wonderful second best alternative. That is definitely saving lives. But it's really inefficient because it requires people to have people who are willing to donate to have matches. We've got to find the matches. We've got to perform the operation simultaneously. Logistically, it's really difficult. If we just allowed money into the, into the mix, everything would be much easier. So I think we should have financial markets in kidneys. And, and in fact, this is actually how the discussion over markets in kidneys started up. There was a Turkish man in, I believe, the 1990s who had a daughter that had kidney failure, and he wanted to be able to save his daughter. He was willing to give up his own kidney, but he couldn't because they weren't a match. So he went to the United Kingdom and he said, look, I'm willing to sell my kidney to somebody who needs a kidney, and then I can use that money and acquire a kidney for my daughter. 
And of course, there was a great outcry. This is clearly wrong. But had he just said, look, my kidney matches yours, your kidney matches my daughter, we can do a barter, that would have been perfectly fine. But that strikes me as absurd. It's okay to swap a kidney for a kidney, but it's not okay to swap kidney for cash and then use that cash to buy another kidney. That's weird. That is weird. <laughs> but I'm curious about the extent to which you think the arguments for kidney markets is going to extend to other organs, vital organs specifically. So one thing that's unique about kidneys, perhaps, is that you can donate them pre-mortem. It's a relatively safe procedure that's done all the time. It's not going to diminish your quality or expected life much. Um, insurance companies, at least in the US, might be keen for this sort of system because without that, they have to keep people on dialysis, which can be comparably more expensive. Uh, but you can't donate a heart pre-mortem and continue living. And it's not obvious to me that'll be the such a market would be cheaper for insurance companies because if you have heart failure and you die, and then they don't have to pay to keep you alive on some artificial machine for months. So I wonder if that's a reason to be suspicious of markets for vital organs in a way that were not for kidney markets. Uh, and more generally, the extent to which you think the arguments for kidney markets are going to be stand or fall together with markets for other, other types of goods. Yeah, so that's a great question. And it brings us back to the original thought experiment. Travis, you were willing to say, yes, it should be your decision whether you die now or in a year's time. And one of the considerations you were, the main consideration you were juggling is, how much money can I save by dying now? How much money can I pass on? But I don't think there's anything morally relevantly different between saying, Travis should be allowed to make that decision and the question of, should Travis be allowed to make the decision to sell his heart? After all, if you sell your heart in order to gain a large amount of money to leave to the people you love, that strikes me as being the same as saying, I will not use in my estate to pay for this medication, which will enable me to live for another year or so. So we might think that there's a difference because of the active and passive nature of things. So the one is, Letting nature take its course, really. In other words, saying, I, I could go and spend my money to buy myself a year, and I'm not going to do it. So I make, I fail to decide. The other one is actively making a decision to die, to sacrifice myself for some benefit. And we might think that there's a distinction there that's important. Uh, and if it does, then the thought experiment doesn't work. You might think there's a distinction there, but I think you'd be wrong. I think you'd be wrong for two reasons. Firstly, in both situations, you're going to be making a decision if the situation is presented to you bluntly. So Travis, you can die now and leave $500,000 to your loved one, or you can use the $500,000 to last another year. Now you've got to make the decision. So there's no not making a decision versus making a decision. But somebody might still say, there's still a disanalogy between this thought experiment and the case of somebody selling a heart. In that in the fourth experiment, you might decide too passively, as you put it, let nature take its course. But when you sell a heart, we've actually got to go in and rip the heart out of your living, breathing body. Although presumably that's probably not how we do it in surgery. So you could say there's a difference. And I think there is a difference, but I'm not sure that it makes any moral difference. 
So is there really a difference between Travis deciding to let nature take its course, knowing that he could stop nature from taking its course, and he's doing so with the intent to leave $500,000 to his family, versus Travis deciding, I'm 89 years old, I've got maybe another year or so to live, I'm going to go online and sell my heart. And then I will use that $500,000 $500, to give to my beneficiaries. I don't think there's really a moral difference between those two decisions. The procedure is different, but I'm not sure it makes a moral difference. So one move that make you a... made is about whether you can waive all of your own rights. So if we think, for example, that failing to save yourself isn't, isn't immoral, um, but that actively killing yourself is because you're waiving a right that's not yours to waive, then you could draw the distinction. And some people do think that rights uh, aren't, aren't the kinds of things that you could waive, that you can't become a slave, that you're doing something wrong when you chop off your feet, even if you think that it's your feet, that there are certain things that you can't do to yourself. So I wonder how you respond to that. It's supposed to be the, gen the general response, which will be unsatisfactory, is I, I find the benefit theory of rights to be and absent of theological underpinning, I find it to be really implausible. Right? Now, if you do have a theological underpinnings, then we're going to have to go upstream, as it were, and talk about that. And as somebody who's happily agnostic, although possibly agnostic with doubts, that's a conversation we might actually productively have. But a more focused response, and perhaps a more satisfactory one, is... I think that the burden of proof lies with people who wish to restrict people's liberty rather than those. So if there's a good argument as to why you ought not to be able to, say, chop off your fingers for profit or waive certain rights, sell yourself partially into slavery, for example, then I think that there's going to have to be an argument for that. So you, I could see somebody saying, look, Travis wants to earn a lot of money very quickly, so he's going to enter into a dangerous profession, high steel construction, which is extremely dangerous. But chances of, chances of injury or death are pretty high. Should Travis be allowed to do that? I think the answer is yes, he should. Now, you could say there's a difference there because now we're just talking about probabilities, whereas with the heart, we're talking about certainty. But then it's going to be difficult to see where we're going to draw the line. And I think that when we're talking about line drawing, the burden again is going to lie with those who wish to restrict liberty rather than those who wish to allow it. So the default assumption should be Travis should be allowed to do what he wants with his own body, provided it doesn't harm others and so forth. That's a very loose approximation. And if you want to stop Travis doing things with his own body, You've got to give us very good reasons for that. So these arguments don't seem to be exclusive to markets that concern medical conditions or like medical treatment. Mm -hmm. They seem to generalize in such a way that might support fights to the death, bring back the sorts of fights that they used to have in the Colosseum, but restrict it to human persons who can consent to risking their lives to fight to the death for others' amusement if the money is high enough. Is that right? Do you want to bite that bullet? I, I think so, yes. 
And I give my students an example which they really hate, which is a lot of them after a certain point of the semester say, yes, people can do what they want with their body and they're in favor of organ sales and so forth. And then I say, I can guarantee I can make this class really memorable. And they say, how? And it's a weird class, so they're interested. I say, it's simple. I'm just going to go online and I'll find somebody who's willing to play Russian roulette for $10,000. I'm putting a grant to the dean's office. Give me $10,000. I won't say what it's for, except a class students will never forget. And then I'll have somebody sit there. They'll spin the chamber of revolver. And no matter what happens, that's a class the students will never forget. And the student's response is, that's horrific. You can't possibly do that's clearly immoral. But it's not clear why, so long as we've secured sufficient amount of informed consent from the person we're making this deal to. And I have to admit, it makes me feel rather uncomfortable. It's because it does seem that there's something maybe not wrong, but lacking in virtue with somebody who's going to so cavalierly treat others' lives in that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let me give this, take a stab at why it's wrong and see what you think about that. First, the last point that you alluded to, I think is an important one that even if we think some acts are permissible, that doesn't preclude a negative assessment of the agent's moral character. So people can do things that are beneficial to others that of course are not wrong to do, but if their motivation is purely out of self-interest, then we can say that the act might say in Kantian terms, the act had no more worth. Or if you're like a self-described utilitarian, you might say that their moral character is really bad. If you're a virtue ethicist, you might say the same sort of thing, but couch it in terms of virtues and vice. But here's an attempt to explain why uh, those sorts of cases might nevertheless be immoral, in spite of the fact that you have, we'll assume, consent of everybody involved. Uh, and that's simply that they don't maximize welfare for all of the morally considerable beings in question. In the Russian roulette case, if you're willing to spend $10,000 to watch someone risk their life like that, I imagine that they're going to benefit from that money or their family is a lot more than you would uh, suffer when you lose it. And your options aren't simply give them the $10,000 to watch them play Russian roulette or not give them the $10,000. You have a plethora of other options, one of which includes just giving them the $10,000 and doing something else instead of watching them play Russian roulette. And I would suspect that in these sorts of cases, there are substitutes available that'll produce roughly the same amount of welfare for the party that was doing the thing that is, if not wrong by your account, at least morally vicious. So I think that they have a small moral interest in doing the vicious thing or paying for the vicious thing. And the other person has a great interest in getting the uh, money in question or whatever sort of way they're going to compensate them. They should just compensate them without the moral viciousness. And then everyone will be better off. So it's wrong in virtue of that. So consider Travis, I see the pull of that. And part of me does actually think that might be the way to go. But I can also see a concern arising pretty quickly. It seems that on that view, what we ought to be doing is always trying to maximize welfare. If we can perform an action which is of relatively low cost to us, relatively low cost, given the advantage that it will accrue, but will accrue to the other person, we should do it. And we ought not to ask for payment for it. 
So Travis, how many kidneys do you have? Well, I never looked, so I'm not certain about that. But I haven't taken any out of me to give to others. <laughs> so presumably you have two kidneys, right? Otherwise, if you've ever had some sort of scan, they, they would have freaked out. I actually had a physician freak out in Bowling Green, Ohio, because I fell off my bicycle, I cut my hand, I went to the emergency room, and they did some sort of scan of my whole body to see if there's anything damaged. And then they did another one because some they were worried the equipment wasn't working. And at the second one, the physician's assistant started really to freak out. So I started to get worried. What's happened? And what they were worried about is I appeared to have two sets of organs because the second scan bit somehow screwed things up and had done it in reverse. And this poor woman didn't think, oh, something's gone wrong. It was, we've got somebody who's got two sets of organs. And that's really creepy. But I was fine and all was well. But imagine this, Travis, if you've got two kidneys, on my view, you should be allowed to sell one. Shouldn't you just give up that kidney? Even without a market, shouldn't you be giving your kidney up now? Because you could save a life by giving up your kidney. Yeah, if they would produce net good, while it's counterintuitive, I am inclined to agree that I should be now, giving a kidney. Now, and Travis, that's a moral failing of me not to do that. And if the dilemma is between accepting that we're morally obligated to do things like give non-vital organs pre-mortem, like kidneys, or that it'd be permissible to pay someone to engage in Russian roulette for mere amusement, I would think that the smaller bullet to bite would be this moral demandingness uh, implication that we're obligated to kidneys rather than that it's morally permissible to pay people to do such horrific things. I think the relative size of the bullets goes the other way. If your view is you are obligated to give up your kidney to somebody who needs it, and you ought not to pay somebody to engage in Russian roulette, that seems like a weirder world to live in than one where you can charge money for your kidney and you can pay somebody to pay Russian roulette, and we all might sneer at you and think you've got a really vicious character for so doing. And to put this in relief, and I checked this before this podcast, if you've got Facebook up, just type into the little search function, I need a kidney. And you will find several groups of people who are begging for kidneys. And it, it's actually heart, it's heart-wrenching to do that because they pick up, they put up post pictures of themselves, they give their life story. And these are people on Facebook who need kidneys to live. That's horrific. That shouldn't be the case. And I think that the best way to solve that is to allow people to charge money for kidneys. Then these people's insurance companies will be able to provide them with kidneys. And almost all of them in their little bios say, this is my insurance company. This is how you can get in touch with people. So these are not hoax sites. They're real people who are terrified that they're going to die unless they get a kidney. And there's a chronic shortage of kidneys, and everybody knows it allow markets and those people's insurance companies would be giving them kidneys. Not because insurance companies are lovely, it's because it's just it's cheaper to have a kidney transplant and a lifetime of immunosuppressant medications than years of dialysis. Yeah, and so that's one thing that I wanted to just follow up on from the previous question. Is the same thing true about <laughs> vital organs? Would it be cheaper for insurance companies to cover heart transplants? than to just treat patients until they die of heart failure? I don't know, to be honest. And 
once again, I'm going to give you two responses. So the first response is, I don't know, but I suspect it would probably be more expensive to have a heart transplant than just to allow people to have heart medication and then die prematurely. Because hearts, I suspect, but I do not know if you have severe heart problems, you've got a very truncated lifespan. Whereas kidney problems, we can keep you going for a reasonably long period of time on dialysis and medication. So the first response is, it's unlikely that a heart sale, a heart market, will be one which will be as practical as a kidney market, because insurance companies are unlikely to be as in favor of it, for sort of rather grim reasons. And the second response is piggybacking on the first, in that whereas I think that a heart market might be morally permissible under certain situations, full consent, a reasonable amount of compensation determined by market forces, possibly, or by actuarial tables as to how much people's particular lives are worth. Whereas I think it would be morally permissible, that really is a thought experiment. I cannot imagine any reputable hospital going into the heart transplant business under those situations. But I can see reputable hospitals going into the kidney transplant business on purchased kidneys. I can see hospitals doing that very willingly. But hearts, no, because you've got the obvious horrible press of you have people who are relatively healthy coming in and then leaving dead, and you're deliberately do doing things to kill them. I can't see physicians getting on board with that at all. Kidneys, liver lobes, plasma, blood, yes. Obviously, I can see markets in those being feasible, practical, and completely ethical. So I want to push back against uh, Travis in two ways. So the one is I don't think you can rule out the gladiatorial contests if he's a utilitarian. So if the concern is we're giving this guy 10,000 rand for your classroom and the utils don't add up because of the trauma the person goes through of the fear of the bullet going off or that they actually die, well, we just up the number of people that watch. And I would imagine there's some point where there's so much joy and so much memory that's created from watching this thing that it beats the guy's death. And so Travis can't deal with that. The other one is that if you care about overall well-being, you might think that markets are an incredibly good way of getting there, even when it comes to hearts. So who's the kind of person who's going to want a heart it might, and be able to pay for it? Might be the very wealthy, those that run big businesses, those that if they live for another five years, we ought to continue employing all those staff and continue to produce wonderful products at Apple or whatever it is. Who are those who are like so desperate and poor that they have to sell their hearts so their family can survive? Probably the homeless, the sort of people who are in death row in prisons, those that aren't contributing much. It seems like you remove those people from society. The good people in society get to live a bit longer. Travis should be delighted. Utility has been maximized. It's only this sort of idea that, well, the poor kind of matter more in some kind of way, that you could get to this idea that we should just let the rich die and not give the poor the benefit of this huge amount of money that could change their families' lives forever. So I'll respond very quickly, but I don't want to take James' time. Yeah, I think a simple-minded utilitarian view is going to have to support this uh, endorsing a pay-per-view for a gladiator tournament. And I think that's a cost for the view, and I don't accept it. I want to introduce all sorts of nuances to my favorite consequentialist view that'll avoid these problems. One that's going to avoid this problem is I want to discount interest for both avoidable harm and 
benefits that would come from culpably held heinous attitudes. And so if you would get joy that's not fitting uh, from some act and you're culpable for having the psychological disposition, then I want to say that doesn't factor into the evaluative ranking of worlds. That's a really complicated view and it's not a straightforward utilitarian view. If, so give me any sort of straightforward utilitarian view and I'll say, yeah, yeah, it's false. And part of the reason it's false is precisely because of the uh, implication that you pointed to just now. As far as keeping really rich people alive, Amazon's not going to go out of business if Jeff Bezos dies, right? One of many other overqualified people will take over for him. Not Apple's still around. <laughs> Steve Jobs made a bunch of imprudent choices about his terminal illness, sadly, and he died. And Apple continued just fine. So I think these large information, even when CEOs at the top die. So I'm not, I'm not less or more concerned about their death relative to people who are have a lower socioeconomic status. So just to piggyback on Travis's response, I'm, I was going to offer your first response also. I think Jeremy Bentham weirdly has an argument like that in his paper on offenses against oneself, where he says he's writing about the British preference for persecuting gay people in the 19th century. And Bentham has an argument that says, look, sure, simple-minded utilitarians, we might persecute gay people because there's this general preference. And he says, we should just get rid of that preference. There's lots of other better preferences you can have. So we can discount preferences for persecution, for imposing pains and harms on others. And that seems to get away from those sort of concerns. But Travis, what if one of the really rich people wasn't a captain of industry, but was Taylor Swift? Now, there's just one Taylor Swift. And Taylor Swift has heart disease. We've got to acquire a heart from a relatively impoverished, not particularly productive member of society, professor of philosophy in New Jersey, for example. And presumably, well-being would be greatly enhanced if wealthy entertainers like Taylor Swift were able to buy rejuvenation things like hearts, liver lobes, kidneys. I fortunately have very bad taste in music, so I would happily bite the bullet uh, on that one. But more generally, I think while there's only one Taylor Swift and there's the art that lots of great artists produce, and I'm not ruling Taylor Swift out from that, is non-fungible in an important respect. It's nevertheless true that when that art is uh, eliminated or no longer able to be produced, people go to one of the other countless artists that produce the same type of art, even if it's different. Uh, and irreplaceable in itself. And they get as much joy from that. So I think there's actually a, overall almost no loss when a TV show is canceled or an artist dies, so forth. But I wanted to ask you about something specific, especially because your view has uh, changed somewhat over the years. I, I, one thing that's in the background of this entire conversation is the concept of exploitation. And I think a general worry that a lot of people who are, are listening or viewing are going to have is that, well, these sorts of markets are going to exploit people. Maybe they'll exploit poorer people. Maybe they'll exploit people who are, are younger and maybe they'll exploit people who aren't as good as thinking through or doing cost-benefit analysis that gets pretty complicated when you start thinking about organ donation. It's not just like giving blood, which is safe and almost will never detract from your quality of life. And these are serious, complicated things that are hard to really evaluate or even know in, in going forward, what your life is going to be like as a result. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about what 
where you stand on exploitation now and why you think that doesn't rule out these sorts of markets? Sure. So I think exploitation's really, it's really interesting, both theoretically and also in practice. And I didn't really address exploitation with respect to kidneys, but I did with respect to plasma markets where we can buy and sell plasma. And plasma, some people don't know what plasma is, but plasma is the pale straw-colored liquid that's part of your blood. And it's incredibly important because it's used to make a lot of therapy for people with immunosuppressant disorders. If you have, say, a bleeding disorder, Travis, like hemophilia, you're going to want to take medication which is made from plasma. If you've got a another type of immunodisorder whereby your immune system doesn't work very well, you're going to have to start taking therapies made from plasma. And when we say immune system doesn't work very well and we talk about hemophilia, people think they know what it is, but it's these are horrific disorders. Hemophilia, you might think, people bleed to death, Russian royal family, Rasputin, Boney M, something around there. But hemophilia is really awful. It does severely shorten your life and it's incredibly painful because you don't have a clotting agent in your blood. So when you get bruised, you, Travis, just get a little bruise and your blood just stops flowing. Not a problem. For hemophiliacs, the blood continues to flow and it's a liquid. So it starts filling every cavity that's around inside your body, like in your joints. So your joints start to swell with blood. It's incredibly painful. And obviously, it shortens your life if you don't get treated. Plasma is used to treat hemophilia. If you're a hemophiliac in the US now, you'll be treating plasma-based, you'll be using plasma-based therapies. You'll live a normal life. If you've got another rarer type of immune deficiency which needs plasma, say the George syndrome, your life is going to be really short because these are hor horrible diseases. Child is born with one of these and they're usually genetically linked. And the child just never thrives, it's constantly sick. It's out of school most of the time. It's flu, everything going around. The child gets, it's lethargic, it can't get out of bed. You take the child to the doctor and the doctor says, oh, seasonal flu or your child just needs more vitamins. After a while, it becomes obvious that's not the problem. By the time you find a specialist who can diagnose one of these really rare disorders and get you on plasmin therapy, it's usually too late the child is going to die. And the grim part of this is if you have a second child, because these are genetically linked, the first child's diagnosis and death saves the second child's life because now you can start treating them with plasma therapy. So plasma is incredibly important. Working our way back to exploitation, one of the arguments against allowing people to sell their plasma is, look, it's exploitative. So you, Travis, might think $50 to give up plasma for an hour and a half. That's not really worth it for me because I'm a highly paid associate professor of philosophy in New Jersey. And I could drive my Lamborghini to the plasma donation center, but I'm just not going to do that because you know, I'm wealthy. But if you're if relatively impoverished, you might think 50 bucks for an hour and a half is a great deal. So there's a concern, and it's a concern expressed in the media whenever the sale of plasma comes up, for people being exploited. 
And I think that's a terribly, I think it's terribly misleading. And I think it's simply an erroneous understanding of exploitation. Here's why. I'm not going to argue that people are not exploited when they sell their plasma. I don't think they are. I'm going to argue for something much stronger. When you ban plasma sales, as most European countries do, you are exploiting your donors. Here's why. And this is where it gets fun. Whenever I used to, when my daughter was younger, whenever I used to go to conferences, I used to buy her a little teddy bear with the name of the university or the area. And she used to love these things. I'm Scots and I always like to save money. So imagine that I'm able to lobby the government of France and say, look, what we should do, we should ban people selling teddy bears. And they say, why? And I said, look, well, the French government, you just love to ban commercial transactions. Get on board with this. And they say, yes, that sounds reasonable. We'll ban teddy bear sales. Now I do that because I know something. I know that there are people in France who out of the goodness of their heart will give me free a teddy bear if I make it known that I really want a teddy bear. So notice what I'm doing. I'm lobbying the French government to ban sales of teddy bears, not because I think people shouldn't have teddy bears, but because I don't want to pay for teddy bears. So the next time I go to Paris, I walk around the streets of Paris, I say, woe is me, I need a teddy bear, but I cannot buy one. Will anybody give me a teddy bear? And some kind French person will come out and say, yes, here is a teddy bear. But they'll say, le teddy bear, to be appropriately French. And I'll get a free teddy bear. It strikes me that my actions are taking advantage of the goodwill of a French person who gives me a teddy bear. And they're doing so illicitly. What I've done is I've arranged a situation whereby I don't have to pay the market price for a teddy bear. I will get one free. And I'm taking advantage of the people that I know would be willing to give me a teddy bear, even though presumably they would prefer to have the market price of a teddy bear. People might be thinking, what the heck does this have to do with plasma? The reason straightforward, uh, my lobbying to ban sales of teddy bears is the equivalent of organizations like, say, the Red Cross lobbying to prohibit compensation to plasma donors. They know that if there is no compensation offered to plasma donors, some people will still donate their plasma, but they won't have to pay for it. So my suggestion is if you have a regime which bans sales of plasma, or bans compensation to plasma donors, the people lobbying for that, if they are doing so in order to secure plasma without payment, are exploiting the donors who are giving up their plasma without payment. In brief, they're doing so because they're interfering with what would otherwise be the natural market price of plasma, and they're doing it for their own benefit. So that's a very long-winded way of saying, I think exploitation should be taken very seriously, but it cuts against prohibiting compensation for plasma and prohibiting compensation for kidneys, not in favor of this. And if you want a very quick and dirty argument against the exploitation worry, imagine this. You could say, Travis, you're exploiting people 
by buying their kidneys up, by buying a kidney from them. The easiest response to that is to say, if you think Travis is exploiting the kidney seller, make Travis pay more. Exploitation can always be addressed by saying, fine, we'll just have a price floor. And we'll set it at a level at which everybody agrees is a non-exploitative price for a kidney. So the sort of theoretical teddy bear approach is, if you're banning compensation for kidneys or plasma, you are going to be exploiting a subset of the donors would actually donate. The quick and dirty response is, look, if you're really concerned about exploitation and you think that the prices are too low for what is being given up, then the simple answer is don't ban the sale, require a higher minimum price. That's very helpful, but I have two brief follow-ups that I'm hoping you can elaborate a bit on. Obviously, I can elaborate. So if exploitation is this closely tied to what the market value in fact is or what it would be, does that imply that somebody convincing another to sell an item to them for less than the market value is necessarily exploitative? That seems weird. Now, I, this relates, This is the second part of the follow-up. I know that in bloody bioethics, you allow that there can be cases of blameless exploitation. I think you even say that some plasma centers right now might be engaged in exploitation, but it's blameless. Um, Just to make it clear, those would be the non-profit plasma centers that would be engaged in blameless exploitation. So the sort of plasma centers that we be operating in France. But commercial plasma centers, I argue, don't engage in exploitation at all. It's those wicked non-profits that are doing the bad things. Okay, okay. Say I go to the teddy bears and say I go to a store and I say, I want to buy a teddy bear for my uh, daughter, but I can't uh, quite afford what the market value is. You sell it to me for less. And they do, in response to me asking that question, seems like your view is going to say that I'm exploiting that business. And that's that seems an odd implication or odd use of the term exploitation to me. Yeah, I agree. And I'm fortunate I don't think I'm committed to that view. What I argue is one person, Mark, will exploit you if Mark takes steps to alter the market price of a product or to alter the general price of a product so it doesn't track market interactions. So it's a exploitation would occur systemically rather than in individual transactions. And I take it my view has got of exploitation has got to be a systemic one rather than focused on individual transactions, because otherwise we'll have the odd result that almost every transaction will be exploitative. You look at eBay and you can get a general sense of how much Taylor Swift CDs go for. It might be, say, roughly 10 bucks, but most of the sales of Taylor Swift CDs are going to be for more than 10 bucks or less than 10 bucks. They're never going to really reach this idealized theoretical market equilibrium. So it would be a really weird view of exploitation if I said the non-exploitative trades will always be at the idealized theoretical market equilibrium. Trades which deviate are going to be exploitative because then we would always have all buyers and sellers would be engaging in some type of exploitation. So I think my analysis has to be a systemic one. And I think your question is really helpful in bringing that out. Okay, good. That is helpful. So one last follow-up then. 
What about coercion? Can that happen on the individual level? And how does that play into assessing whether these sorts of transactions are permissible or impermissible on your view? Coercion absolutely can happen at the individual level. So from in, in Scotland, we still have highwaymen. They're really unsuccessful. They still use horses. When they're going onto a motorway full of cars, things end badly for them. But occasionally they might meet a poor, impoverished non-driver like me. And they say, your money or your life, and I have to hand over my money. Clearly, you can have coercion on an individual level. Right? So the worry that some people voice is, look, you're going to have coercion within markets on the individual level where people will coerce family members into selling kidneys or selling plasma. But plasma is so relatively low in value, but usually kidneys. I take those sort of concerns really seriously because there's good evidence that sometimes that does happen. So if you look at the gender of people who sell kidneys in the black market in India, it's usually women. And it isn't that women tend to have, tend to be really avaricious and want the money for kidneys. It's pretty clear there's something else going on, and it's likely to be familial coercion going on. But while there's going to be coercion in an illegal market, we can take steps to ameliorate that in a legal market. So we can have six-month meetings over, say, six months of people who are potential kidney sellers. We can do what we do now with people who donate kidneys, where we take them to one side and say, look, do you really want to do this? Or is there some type of coercion going on? So we can ameliorate within a legal market. And Notice that we already take steps to ameliorate within the donation system we currently have because coercion clearly takes place there also. Right? So you really need a kidney and your brother is the only match. Your family is going to put a lot of pressure upon your brother to donate a kidney, even if you dislike each other quite intensely. And, and incidentally, another wonderful thing about markets, because there's just so many, is we see in Iran a decrease in altruistic donation of kidneys between family members. And people who don't like markets point to that and see people are becoming less altruistic. I look at that and I say, see, this is wonderful. People who would prefer not to donate a kidney are now being freed from the obligation to, do, to donate to a family member because they can tell that family member, I will mortgage my house or sell items and we can buy you a kidney. I think that's wonderful. So I, in practice, I take coercion very seriously and it is going to occur in a legal market. It's definitely occurring in the illegal markets. But I think the way to ameliorate that is to legalize and regulate rather than ban. I wonder why you want to introduce these sort of market regulations. Why have things like price controls? Why get the states involved? It seems like price controls in other areas mess with market efficiency. Why not just say it's a free-for-all? If you want to sell your blood and someone's willing to pay the price, willing buyer, willing seller, there is no exploitation. As long as you have an agreement, that's all that matters. There's no price in the sky that must be determined. If you try and think about it, how would you work out the price of plasma? Is it the value for the person? It's going to save their life, right? It's invaluable. Is it the amount of time the person has to sit in this sort of stool? Or what could else they be doing selling their time? If they're a homeless bum, I don't know, picking up trash cans and getting 50 cents an hour, 
Do we pay them that? If you're a high brass philosophy professor, then it's obviously a thousand. Like Travis, thousand dollars. Yeah. <laughs> so it just seems. What are you willing to pay? That's the question. Uh, and if you accept that price, then there's no exploitation. So why do you want to mess with that by introducing these minimum plasma prices, like minimum wage laws? What kind of a pinko commie are you? <laughs> so I'm I'm the sort of pinko commie who's a pragmatic pinko commie. So when it comes to Plasma, and I'm trying to find a way to say pragmatic pinko plasma commie, just for the alliteration. When it comes to plasma, I'm perfectly happy to allow different companies to offer different prices, to offer different levels of compensation, maybe as they do to offer different levels of compensation depending on the type of plasma that you might have. So I believe that during the pandemic, some companies were offering more compensation to donors who had COVID-19 because they were interested in acquiring plasma with antibodies. I'm perfectly happy to have that happen with plasma. It seems to work extremely well at the moment. You have companies which compete with each other. They offer various benefits. They offer non-financial benefits. So they say, we've got comfier chairs from this other company and so forth. I think that all works wonderfully. With kidneys, however, I think in an ideal world, we would have just an open free market and it would work ideally wonderfully. But I think just pragmatically, the idea of having a market in kidneys is such a hard sell anyway, that it's got to be combined in a non-ideal situation with, look, you can have all of the regulations that you have now concerning kidney donation and those would cover kidney sale too. So you can't just walk into a hospital and say, I'm feeling really altruistic. Who would like my kidney? And they say, are you sure? And you say, yes, absolutely. And you hand over a kidney. No hospital would take a kidney under those situations in the United States because almost certainly they'd be worried about a lawsuit if you change your mind. And there's a whole series of regulations that they have to adhere to. If in an ideal situation, I think we should have people being willing to buy and sell kidneys. We have kidney auctions and so forth. In a non-ideal situation, we're going to have to piggyback upon the current regulations for kidney donation to give with additional regulations because there's going to be significant amount of money involved. So we would want to make sure that you're not being coerced, just as we do now. We might be really concerned about you not being coerced if there's going to be a quick windfall of, say, $150,000 on the table, and you come in with your family members. Matt, you tie this market value to informed consent, too, in Bloody Bioethics. So I think you've argued that people who are donating right now are not really giving their informed consent because they might have false beliefs about the value of what they're giving. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, and, and this is what I like about bloody bioethics is it's not as straightforward. Here are the objections to allowing compensation for plasma donation. Here's why they don't work. What I do in bloody bioethics is I go on the offensive. I say, all of your objections against compensating plasma donors don't work against commercial plasma compensation. They do work against regimes where you don't compensate. So I've already mentioned how concerns about exploitation should be leveled against regimes like France, which don't allow compensation. 
France is actually exploiting some subset of its plasma donors. That's wrong. The United States, with a commercial system, is not. That's good. And with respect to informed consent, things get even worse with respect to the non-compensation system. So there's a lovely study by two Swedish economists, Melstrom and Johansson. And this is a study which people who don't like plasma donation or plasma compensation always point to. What Melstrom and Johansson show rather neatly is when you start offering compensation to potential blood donors, the amount of blood donated starts to drop. And this seems weird, right? You'd think that if you started offering compensation, people would say, yes, I'd be more inclined to donate, not less inclined to donate. What they show is that doesn't happen. You offer compensation, the donations start to drop. And it seems what's happening there is this. Once you offer a small amount of compensation for something like blood or plasma, people now think, gosh, that wasn't as valuable as I thought it was. So if you say, look, you are giving the priceless gift of life in donating plasma. So you're in Canada and you're in one of the provinces, you're in Quebec, because you know, they're French and they don't like markets. And they say, no compensation with plasma. You're giving the priceless gift of your life to your fellow Quebecois. And you think that's wonderful. This is priceless, incredibly valuable. So you donate. And then you realize, wait a minute, it turns out that in, say, Ontario, they only give 50 Canadian dollars for a donation of plasma. And it's Canadian dollars. It's not even real American dollars. It's a holy crap. This isn't the priceless gift of life. I'm spending an hour and a half for 50 bucks. This is nonsense. Now, you might then say, I'm not going to donate plasma. Notice that you're not any less altruistic. You're still the same person. You've just been given information which is relevant to your decision-making process. So you might think, if it's only 50 bucks, as an attorney, I thought I was doing something which was priceless and it was worth my time. But it's really not. I'm just spending an extra two hours doing pro bono work at the homeless shelter. Better use of my time. So if you want people to give their informed consent about whether or not they should donate plasma, I think that you're going to have to tell them how much this stuff is actually worth. And the Maelstrom and Johansson study, I think, showed this really neatly. It isn't the case that people will suddenly say, gosh, you know, I want to be altruistic, but my altruism has somehow been demeaned by the offer of money. People are actually now thinking, this isn't the good use of my time that I thought it was. I'm going to do something else. So you might see a shift in people who donate. Some people will drop out when you start offering money, but you're going to crowd in other people who might think 50 bucks for plasma, that's a good deal for an hour and a half of time. And yeah. the lovely thing is, we've got wonderful empirical evidence of this in that the United States, which offers compensation for plasma, provides, I believe, around 80% of the world's plasma. Offering compensation is an incredible way to get plasma. And in human terms, this means the people with hemophilia, the people with immune deficiencies, they're getting the treatment they need. Prohibit compensation will still get plasma, but there will be hemophiliacs who die because we want to ban compensation. And that's just a fact. 
Right. Point taken. On an autobiographical note, I gave plasma uh, in Arizona when I had started college Wonderful. to help me Excellent. pay the rent. And it was, I had a great experience every time. But there's two, there's two, I think, important questions about the uh, points that you just raised. One is I'm not so sure that the information about what the value would be if there were a market is relevant, assuming there is, even is a fact about what the value would be rather than a range of possibilities depending on the nature of the market itself. But one reason is the value in the absence of a market can be very different from what the value would be if there were a market. So if they were given this information, they might falsely think my giving plasma is only worth 50 bucks uh, or my giving a kidney is only worth $20,000. But in actuality, since there's not a market and there's a shortage, the difference that you would make really would be a difference to your life. And it really would be much more valuable than that. So it could actually potentially mislead people. The second thing, um, I was talking with Rob McDougall about this, um, who has rights on yeah. similar issues. And he raised this worry that if that is a requirement of informed consent, there's a question about whether that generalizes. Should informed consent for all sorts of medical procedures require that people are given information about how much it costs in various counter uh, sorry, in various counterfactual situations where there are markets for these things, that seems like a heavy burden to put on medical professionals to provide all this information to them. Yeah, I think both of those are good points. To start with the second one, I don't think that the argument generalizes. And here's why. So plasma and blood, people are often told this is priceless. It's in short supply. Through for plasma, not obviously true for blood. I think the American Red Cross has a habit of dumping blood and selling it. Incidentally, it makes money from its blood acquisition. But think of something like kidneys. Do we know that kidneys are really valuable to people? Yes, we do. Those are super valuable organs. You can't live if you've got end-stage renal disease and you don't get the kidney transplant in time. We don't need to have a market to know that kidneys are valuable. So we so my argument over informed consent is going to be an argument which runs over things which we might have mistaken views about. So blood and plasma, are they valuable? Yes, they're really valuable because they're life-saving. Are they economically valuable? Each individual donation isn't clearly as economically valuable as we think it is. Now, also to your point, I think you're right. For some people, it's just not going to matter, right? Some people identify as, I'm a blood donor. I'm a plasma donor. I want to help people with the Georgia syndrome because I have a cousin with it. Doesn't matter how much they're going to pay me or how much they're not paying me. I'm just going to donate. Those people have all of the information they need to make a fully informed decision. But for some people, and I think it can be a significant minority, the economic value of their donation is going to make a difference in their decision-making. And it's those people that I think we should be concerned with securing their informed consent. Does that make sense? So it generalizes in two ways. It doesn't generalize across every plasma donor, and it doesn't generalize across donors for every type of organ. That makes sense. But yeah, okay, good. But I thought the market value in the absence of an existing legal market could be different from what the market value would be if there were a legal regulated market. And if what's required for informed consent is giving them the value of what it would be in a legal regulated market, that could make them think that what they're doing 
in the actual world is less valuable than it in fact is. Maybe there'd be no shortage of plasma yes. if we had yeah. Uh, yeah. legal markets mm-hmm. around the world. And I'm told it's worth 50 bucks or whatever if I'm in Canada where you can't pay for that. And then I say, well, I'm not going to do it. Then I'll go do something more valuable. But that's not the world we live in. We live in a world where there's a shortage of plasma. So now really the amount that someone would pay me if they could pay me in the absence of a market would be much higher. Why isn't that the relevant information that should be given for informed consent? But notice how perverse that argument seems to be. What information is relevant? My suggestion is the amount that would actually be paid were there a market. Your objection or your concern, which I think is a good one, is to say, absent of a market, what would be paid is actually going to be much higher because the prohibition on a market has created an artificial shortage. Demand remains constant, supply is shortened, so the price goes right up. So I take it that the question is, what's, what information is relevant? And if we don't have a market, we've created an artificial shortage. And so you're right that your plasma donation is really valuable. I can't honestly put my finger on it, but there's something really weird about that type of argument in favor of prohibition. right? So we can make plasma a little bit more like kidneys in that we know that they're really valuable without knowing the price of them. How do we do that? We impose a ban so we have an artificial scarcity. And then we take away the worry about information. But that seems to be to hop back to Mark's earlier comment. We're trading off the claim that look, we can solve this problem with informed consent so we can be opposed to markets in plasma, but we're doing it at a huge cost. We're generating an artificial scarcity in order to solve the problem of informed consent. And that seems weird. It seems especially weird because now we're saying, look, we'll generate huge amounts of death and suffering so if we can solve a theoretical point. (laughs) It seems perverse. It seems perverse as an argument against a regulated market. But with respect to what the concept of informed consent should require, Mm -hmm. then it doesn't seem weird to me. That's the relevant bit of information for informed consent in the actual world. But not as an Mm -hmm. I take your point, that'd be very weird to try to use that as an argument against markets. Mm -hmm. 